I'm excited to be continuing in the book of Mark with you. We've been discussing the kingdom of God. Jesus as king brings the kingdom with him and it changes everything. And so we're continuing the story in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. I'll read and pray and we'll jump in. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize that you are one who comes with authority. You are King of Kings and Lord of Lords and your word will be accomplished. God, I'm just uh, remembering this last verse that your fame spread because you cleansed a man of an unclean spirit. God, we pray that your fame would spread throughout Carpinteria, the coastlands and the nations because you have made all your people clean. You've made all your people holy. God, give us a glimpse of your holiness today. Give us a glimpse of your lordship today, Lord. Give us a glimpse of your authority that you use for the good of your people. God, we love you and ask that you would lead us and teach us in this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today there are many people who present themselves as authorities. Anyone with a YouTube channel and an opinion can start gathering followers. But it's incredibly difficult to get people to agree on whether or not an authority can be trusted. Whether politics or religion or science or medicine or anything else, we are struggling to agree on what authority we can trust. I have read several studies over the year. Feels like a new study comes out every year, six months, telling me what I should believe about eggs. When I was a child, my mom would only let me have four eggs a week because apparently they are high in cholesterol. But now there are doctors that will tell you that cholesterol is actually not a problem, that sugar is what's causing all of the heart attacks in America. So eat as many eggs as you want. Who do we believe? What do we believe? What is, who is the final authority on eggs? I would like to know. Look, there are real divisions and injustice in the world over politics, race, and disease control, but we can't even agree on eggs other than the fact that they are delicious. 
So we don't agree on breakfast. And I'm not saying that these other issues, that we should just ignore these issues. They are important. I'm just saying that we cannot expect that everyone will agree because we cannot even agree on what the authority is. It's not an opinion issue. It's an authority issue. We don't agree on what sources are authoritative. But these debates about eggs and cholesterol that might be silly, even politics are not the most uh, painful contexts when we talk about authority. Depending on your experience with authority figures in life, you'll have a different relationship with the authorities that God continues to bring in your life. If your authority figures in your life were consistent and present and loving and created a safe space for you, then chances are you don't know what all the fuss is about when it comes to authority. But if you had authority figures in your life that were abusive, that oppressed you, that wounded you or somebody that you loved or created an unsafe environment or were not consistent, you never knew what to expect from them, then the idea of Jesus being one who has authority can be unsettling to say the least. Authority though is not bad. It's the way someone wields authority that can be bad. And so Jesus here redeems authority. He uses his authority for the good of others. We see Jesus' authority in the way that he teaches. Jesus comes into a synagogue and starts teaching. Now, a synagogue was a place of worship and prayer and Bible study. They were like local churches in the first century Jewish context. And so Jesus goes into a synagogue and we're not given the content of his teaching, but given the previous passage, we can assume that Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God and calling people to faith and repentance. That is how Jesus preached. However, the people are not most impressed by the content of his teaching, but his style. They are like many churchgoers today, enamored by a preacher's style more than they are the content of what he's saying. And so they are particularly astonished by Jesus' authority. Mark says that he preaches not like the scribes, just throwing the scribes under the bus, right? Jesus has authority, not like those guys over there. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were the religious leaders. They were the primary Bible teachers of the day. And the scribes, we know how they taught because we have things recorded for us in history. The scribes, when they would make a point, they would quote rabbi so-and-so and and rabbi somebody else who said this or said this other thing. And rabbi so-and-so disagrees with them, but this is how we interpret this. And so they were not only interpreting the text, they were interpreting everyone else who ever said anything about the text and they were resolving their authority to make a claim in the claim that somebody else had made prior to them. But that's not how Jesus teaches. We get an example of how Jesus teaches in Mark chapter five, or sorry, Matthew chapter five during the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you have been told, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, 
that anyone who lusts after a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. You have been told, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who has hated their brother has already murdered him in their heart. He doesn't quote anybody else. His authority is not bound up in anybody else. The value and authority of what he is saying comes directly from who he is. He is the king and this is his royal edict. What he says goes. He is the authority. But talk is cheap. Right? Anyone can say anything. I can say all kinds of stuff up here. Jesus could say anything, but what is to say that he actually has the authority to make those claims? Talk is cheap. It doesn't mean anything. And so it's time for Jesus to put his money where his mouth is. And so Jesus' authority is confirmed when out of nowhere, a man with an unclean spirit strolls into the synagogue. Now, church, we have to talk about this. Before we can move forward, we need to talk about what is going on. The spiritual realm is real. Satan is real. Demons are real. But there are two errors that we can make when talking about the spiritual realm and talking about spiritual warfare. The first is that we can ignore it. We can believe that it's true, but we just completely ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist or that it doesn't affect us. It's been said that Jesus' greatest work is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Did I say Jesus? I meant Satan. Not the same dude. Satan's greatest feat is convincing the world he doesn't exist. We can't ignore it. The second error that we can make is to obsess over it. We can become so fascinated, so interested in the spiritual realm, in spiritual warfare, that we actually run the risk of taking our eyes off of Jesus because we're so focused on the works of the enemy. We become more aware of the evidences of Satan than we are the evidences of the Holy Spirit. More aware of his work than aware of what Jesus has done for us. And so we run the risk of idolatry by turning away from Jesus and focusing on this other stuff. So we can't obsess over it. We can't ignore it. Another way that people obsess over it is by blaming the devil for everything. Everything wrong that goes in life. It's the devil's problem, right? There's a story that I love, a joke about a man walking down the street and he passes by this beautiful cathedral. And on the steps of this church, Satan is sitting there just weeping. And the man says, what's wrong, Satan? What's going on? And he says, that church is full of people blaming me for things I never did. We obsess over the spiritual realm by blaming everything on the devil and we give the devil too much credit. He's not personally responsible for every illness you suffer or every lost job or every breakup. He's not personally responsible every time I fall into sin or you make mistakes. It's giving him way too much credit. He's powerful He is, make no mistake. Don't try to downplay Satan's power. He is powerful. But something that I see people doing often is we take attributes that only belong to God and apply them to Satan as though Satan were God's equal opposite, right? Like Satan is not omnipresent. God is. 
God is with you wherever you go. If you climb to the heavens, he is there. If you go down to the depths, he is there. He is with you. His glory fills the universe. God is everywhere. Satan's confined to an individual location. He is a created being. He is not God's equal opposite. We cannot apply things that are only true about God to Satan or to some demonic realm, making it as powerful as God. It is not. He's not. He's a created being. And Jesus is the uncreated, eternally existent, almighty son of God. They are not equals. And spoiler alert, Jesus is going to win. We're going to be in the gospel of Mark for a year. It's going to take us a while to get there, but Jesus is going to win. He is victorious. We're told that he has disarmed the spiritual rulers, that God has disarmed them and put them to open shame in Christ on the cross. So it's, we don't remove the demonic realm from the equation altogether. We just need to put it in its place. Right? And so we need a biblical understanding of spiritual warfare. Satan and his army of demons are real and active in the world. We need to know that for certain. Make no mistake. But they're not the only source of sin and temptation or suffering in life. Scripture says that these things come from three sources. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That sin and temptation come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Warfare comes from the world. The world is broken. And as it functions in its brokenness, people are wounded. Disease, disaster, and death. These are all things that are product of a fallen world. Also, our culture parades false gods in front of us. Hero worship, athletes, actors, musicians, models, entrepreneurs, all inclining us to be disciples of anything else, anyone other than Jesus. And so when surrounded by such amazing specimens of human potential, why would anyone want to follow a homeless, unemployed preacher who never had a romantic relationship and died young on a cross? Why? Why would anyone follow Jesus? when the world is parading all of these other temptations toward glory in front of us. Sure, we'll let Jesus handle our sin. Jesus, I'll let you die for my sin, but that's all you get. I'm following these other people so that I can reach my best life now. All of these other people I will go after. We go after anyone but Jesus. This is all influence from the world, but it also plays into the warfare from within our own flesh, our own sinful nature. Look, none of us need anyone's help to shipwreck our own lives. We are all one awful decision away from ruining everything. Let that sit there for a while. You could make one decision right now as you sit, as you sit to destroy your marriage, destroy your family, end your career, ruin your reputation. And right now you could all do that. Don't. Please. We're all one bad decision away from shipwrecking our lives. And we don't need anyone's help to do that. There is a war within our own flesh. We are broken. 
And as we function in our brokenness, we wound ourselves and we hurt others. We're made to be faithful and fulfilled in God alone, but we turn to other things for satisfaction instead of him. Though we don't need anyone's help, it doesn't stop the enemy from trying though. Temptation to sin comes from the world, the flesh, but the enemy is right there fanning it all into flame. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Though Satan can't force you to do anything, he is certainly going to set up the pins and, and, and wait for you to knock them down. He's going to do everything he can to appeal to us. But when we fail, the devil didn't make you do it. He only invites us to do something our sinful hearts already wants to do. And so this warfare that exists in our minds and our hearts and our world, it comes from the world, the flesh and the devil. And so we don't ignore the spiritual realm or ignore the spiritual warfare that we experience, but we must be watchful. We must think rightly and we must know that we are not to be overwhelmed by it. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And this is demonstrated in a powerful way in our passage. Okay, we got to get back to the text now. A man with an unclean spirit walks into the synagogue. He shows up out of nowhere and opposes Jesus to his face. Now I'll remind you, this goes down in a synagogue, in a local congregation. Demons go to church. We cannot justify ourselves by our presence in this place. We cannot justify ourselves by coming to church. Demons also go to church. We are justified not by where we go and what we do, but we are justified by the word of God and the work of God. That Jesus work on the cross has justified you, has forgiven you of your sin and his declaration that you have been made righteous because of what he has done has justified us. We are not justified by our presence in church. We are justified by the relationship that we have with Jesus that has been accomplished by him on the cross. So when people ask you, how do you know that you're a Christian? You don't say, because I go to church. Demons go to church. When somebody asks you, how do you know? Or when you're struggling with your own assurance, how do I know that I'm saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You are saved by who Jesus is and what he has done, not what seat you're in right now. And so a man with a demon comes into church. I am going to use the words demon and unclean spirit synonymously. That's what they are. And so this man is with a demon, but they don't walk in side by side. The, the force of the original language is that this man was in 
an unclean spirit. He was literally contained within uncleanness. That these two beings, this man and the unclean spirit, are operating as one entity. And so the demon cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. These are fighting words, right? This phrase, what have you to do with us, literally translated is what to you and to us. It doesn't make any sense in English, but it is roughly translated, come at me, bro. He wants to throw down with Jesus. Check this out. The, the, the demon's remarks, his words have been studied by people who have studied ancient magic texts. And they understand that exorcisms were not unique to Jesus' ministry. Jesus was not the only one who ever tried to cast out demons. And so the demon is being very strategic. They recognize in these, uh, in these different formulas and in these different strategies for casting out evil spirits, people used to use a variety of techniques. Um, they would sometimes use some spiritual artifact. There was like power in this thing. And so they tried to use the power of that thing to drive out an unclean spirit. They would try to <clears throat> ascertain, try to get the, the name of the demon and use the demon's name. Because if you can use the demon's name, then you have power over the unclean spirit. They would use the phrase, I know you, trying to claim that knowledge of the person gave them uh, authority over the person. And they would even assign a title to the spirit's identity to try to, to force them into an identity to have power over them. And so all of these techniques, specifically the using of names and titles, was all an attempt to gain power over the spirit. You see what the demon is doing here? He's trying to exercise Jesus. He says, I know you, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. He is trying to cast Jesus out. It doesn't work. Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't subscribe to these ancient magic texts. He doesn't, the demon doesn't walk in. He goes, hang on, I'm going to go get my crystals, right? I need something, I need something with power. He doesn't do any of that. He says, quiet, get out, and the demon leaves. That's all he needs. Quiet, get out, and the demon goes away. And nobody's ever seen anything like this before. Again, exorcisms were not unique in that culture, but the way Jesus did them was very unique. They say, even the unclean spirits obey him. What is this? A new teaching with authority. Notice this all goes down in the synagogue. Everyone sees it. And what they walk away talking about is his teaching. What is this? A new teaching with authority. And then only secondarily, they say, even the unclean spirits obey him. So they're mesmerized by Jesus' authority. Jesus' power over the demonic realm demonstrates that his authority is from God. And if his authority is from God, then his teaching is from God. And we had better listen. I think there are many people who will gladly let Jesus serve them. Right? We're thankful that he died for us. We would love for him to heal us and bless us, but we don't like it so much when Jesus tries to teach us. 
We don't like it when anybody tries to teach us. But his authoritative works are what validate his authoritative words. We can't have one without the other. They both demand our attention and they both demand a response. And there are a variety of responses to Jesus' authority in this passage. And our response reveals our hearts. See, at first, the people are astonished or offended. There's a lot of, there's, there's debate over whether or not this astonishment is from joy or indignation, right? Think about that. We read that and we automatically assume like joy. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't. I do. I read that and I go like, oh yeah, they were excited. They were astonished. But you can also be, I'm astonished at you. How dare you? We can have this indignation in our astonishment. So what is it? Are they like, are they super pumped about Jesus' authority? Or are they kind of offended by Jesus' authority? Let's apply what we know about scribes and religious leaders who never like anything Jesus does or says to the situation. Jesus walks into their house, the synagogue. The synagogue is their house where they are the leaders. And Jesus starts upstaging them. They're not pumped on Jesus. They're pretty frustrated with Jesus. They're astonished at Jesus. And so sometimes we can be offended by Jesus. Have you ever been reading the Bible and been offended by something that you read? If not, keep reading. It's there. Our sinful hearts are offended by the demand for holiness. Our self-righteousness is offended by any uh, claim that we should be holy or that we're not holy. That we would need God to die. That we would need something so powerful, so grand, so immense, so horrible that our sin would actually cause that. Look, that's, if you think you're okay, that's offensive. That's offensive. We can read scripture and be offended. And we say, who do you think you are, Jesus? You don't have the right to tell me blank. Don't tell me what to do. We can be offended. We can be astonished. Or maybe we read scripture and we respond with opposition as the demon did. Well, the Bible, you know, like it's so old and it's, I mean, it's a translation. So we can't really know like what it said. And so many different people have, have copied it. And it's, you know, it just, it doesn't apply anymore, right? We, we oppose scripture. Let me, I'll just be flat out honest with you. I'm not going to jump into a whole defense of the biblical texts, but that holds zero water. We know what the biblical texts say. There's no one doubts what Homer wrote in the Iliad. And we've got like 12, right? I think it's even less than 12. There's over 2,000 copies of the New Testament, like ancient manuscripts. We know what it says, Right? We come to scripture and we go, oh gosh, like this hurts a little bit. Like the conviction of my sin, it hurts. Oh, that's okay. I don't have to believe it because after all, it's old. What are you doing reading it? If you're not going to listen to it, why are you reading it? But we pick and choose what we want to believe. 
and we decide that this is going to be authoritative, but this isn't. Listen, if you're going to read the Bible and not treat the whole thing as authoritative, then there is no reason for you to believe that any part of it is authoritative. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. God's truth never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, it's an old book. Culture has changed, but we contextualize age-old, timeless truths to a new, modern culture. That doesn't change the truth. It should change the culture. Not to get us back to living like they did in the first century, but to get us living in light of the truth of God and who he is and what he has done in our own culture. Maybe we're not offended. Maybe we don't oppose Jesus' teaching. Maybe we are, in fact, amazed by him and even a little bit curious. But notice what they do. Jesus' call is to follow him and the people that are amazed leave him. We do this too. We get super excited about about Jesus, about something that he's done, something that he said, a new truth that we've learned, and we go tell everybody about it. We may even call ourselves Christians. We associate with, uh, with, with Jesus, but we're not actually following him. We're just waiting for another exciting thing to happen so that we can get excited again, but we're not actually following him. All of this reveals our hearts. It shows that often we only care or are affected by what Jesus says and does, but it does not take into consideration who Jesus is. Doesn't take into consideration his identity. You know, there's one response. There's one response to Jesus' authority in this passage that comes from an understanding of who he is. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And this has haunted me this week. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is and he obeys. He obeys Jesus. Now this doesn't say anything about his spiritual condition, right? He's still a demon. He's still opposed to Jesus. But we often think that the ones who are most spiritually destitute are those living in stubborn disobedience. And yet there are a lot of people who will obey Jesus as Lord, but are not following him, who are still trying to live as their own saviors. There's many people, maybe even here today, who can look to all of your obedience and you would point to all of your obedience. You would point to your presence here in church. You would point to all of the things that you've done for God as your justification. You know exactly who Jesus is. So does the demon. I don't want to offend anyone, but I want you to wake up. If you're here and living your life, trying to make yourself good enough or trying to prove you're good enough, you need a healthy dose of what Jesus has done for you. On the other side, there's many of us who are following Jesus, who know grace, who know what God's done for us, that know that Jesus has died for our sins, that we're not saved by anything we do on our own, but we're saved by the blood of Jesus. 
who aren't obeying him, who are living the lie that, well, I know I'm just going to be forgiven. So I'll go do X, Y, and Z. I've got freedom, Christian freedom to go do whatever I want. And I know that I'm under the blood. That's not the gospel. There's no power in that. There's no power in that. Jesus is who he says he is. We believe that, but he's also done what he's done because we needed him to do it. We're never going to uh, work our way into salvation, but if we have been saved, then we will follow, we will obey, we will do the things that he calls us to do. I think often the reason we don't obey Jesus is because we haven't actually grappled with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. See, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, did not come to destroy you. As the demon cries out, have you come to destroy me? Jesus has not come to destroy you. He's come to save you. His teaching at times may be difficult to receive. But he loves you and he wants you to know and experience mercy and grace. He didn't come to shame you in your sin. He came to set you free from shame and sin. Look, I know I'm saying some hard things, but none of it is to shame you. All of it is to awaken you to the fact that you no longer have to be ashamed You no longer have to live in the reputation of your past. You no longer have to identify with the wounds inflicted on you or the wounds that you have inflicted on others. You no longer have to be identified by the names that you have given yourself, the names others have given you, and the names the enemy wants to give you to have power over you. He wants to tell you that you're a failure. He wants to tell you that you're hopeless. He wants to tell you that you're a sinner. He wants to tell you that you can't do it. And you know what? Honestly, sometimes we need to look those, those, those words, that, that enemy in the lie and say true, but Jesus has. Jesus has done it. I am not those things anymore. I am who Jesus says that I am. You are not justified by your works. You are not justified by your ability to prove to others that you have changed or that you can change or that you can do good or that you can actually accomplish something in life. None of that has any bearing over your status with God. You are in Christ under the blood and there is nothing that you or anybody else or the devil himself can do about it. If we believe these things, if we truly allow these things to impact our hearts, I believe that nothing could hold us back from obedience. Nothing could hold us back from following Jesus. Not so that we can be saved by our our obedience, but we have been saved. We are loved and therefore we obey. Therefore we follow gratefully, graciously. The good news of Jesus is that he has the authority to change our hearts. See, we get so focused on the unclean spirit in this passage that, oh my goodness, even the unclean spirit obeys him and leaves. And how many of you, 
I'll be honest. I did this all the time. How many of you forgot about the man? I forgot about the man. I forgot about a man who walked into a synagogue tormented. This is worst case scenario. This is the height of, of uh, like spiritual problems, right? This is the lost cause. The man who walks in separated from God. He's the extreme case, indistinguishable from the unclean spirit. And he walks out clean. He walks out having been made holy. See, it's not just the unclean spirits that Jesus has authority over. He has authority over you. He says the word and he makes you holy. When our hearts are far from Christ, filled with uncleanness, his word draws us near and makes us clean. Whether the filth is from sin or self-righteousness or even the presence of the devil himself. Jesus' word to us, follow me, draws us near and by his death and resurrection, he makes us holy. See, many will hear Jesus' words and be offended. Many will be curious or even amazed, but by faith, we can receive Jesus' words and be made holy. And church, this changes the way we approach scripture. The word of God, when poured over us, cleanses us, washes us, makes us holy. We have God's words in scripture daily. We have the opportunity to be cleansed by them. In scripture and in the believing community of faith, we have the opportunity to be reminded of the things that he said and the things that he has done and be made new, be cleansed afresh. Not just one time in the past, but continually. It's not about coming to church. It's about coming to Jesus and receiving from him all that he has said and done. And by his authority, church, we are made holy. His only demand is that we follow him. We follow his life. We follow his teaching. We submit ourselves to his authority. We are made holy and we are set free from anything the world, the flesh, and the devil can bring. And we are set free to follow our king in the kingdom of God and the new creation. This is good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are holy and that you make your people like you. You make us holy. God, I've just been reminded by the prophet who said, going after worthless things, they became worthless. Lord, we will become what we worship. If we worship idols, we will become worthless. If we worship dead, mute, powerless idols, we will become like them. But God, it is you who is high and lifted up in our minds, in our hearts, and in our church. God, it is Jesus, it is you that we worship. Make us holy like you are holy. Wash us in your word. God, wash us in your truth. We submit ourselves to you as king, knowing that you use your authority to save and not to punish. Lord, you use your authority to call sinners to holiness, not to rub our nose in our filth. Jesus, you are good. We give you all that we are. 
And as the people left the synagogue and your fame spread through all of Galilee, God, I pray that we would leave this place and your fame would spread, not just because you have authority over demons, but because you make your people clean. You make us holy. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.